1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bing, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Nanyang, Assistant Professor of History, Florence Mock, to talk about her book which is published in 2023, Covert Colonialism. Governance, Surveillance, and Political Culture in British Hong Kong from 1966 to 1997. This book fills the gap by researching and explore, explored history of colonial governance and political culture in Hong Kong during a critical period for both Chinese society and colonial government in Hong Kong. His author, Florence Mock, who is talking to us today, is a historian of colonial Hong Kong and modern China at the Nanyang Technological University and has published widely on Hong Kong and state society relations and the Cold War. Florence, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for uh, uh kind invitation and provide this platform for me to uh, share uh, some of the findings in my new book. Um. So um. let I'll begin uh to look at like uh, the core theme of uh, this book so uh, this book is mainly about Hong Kong of course as the title has indicated uh which is one of uh which was one of Britain's last strategically important uh, Colonial dependency and it mainly looked at how a reformist Colonial Administration investigate Chinese political culture in particular how activism by social movement in Hong Kong impact on policy making um, the most important uh, part of this book I believe is uh to look at the increased organizational capacity of the colonial state at that time, so mainly focusing on uh, two covert mechanism that was embedded in uh, the CDO scheme that is Tang uh, Top and Mute. So at that time in colonial Hong Kong, Hong Kong people had extremely limited political rights, uh, there was no democracy, so these books mainly uh, try to explore how constructive public opinion uh, was used in uh, policy making, and how uh, these opinions are uh, mainly used by the colonial state to respond to public needs and to minimize uh, social conflicts. So in terms of uh, source and structure, uh, as Beng has just introduced, I'm a historian. So uh, this book actually uh, utilizes a lot of underexplored archival data. So they are mainly in uh, London, uh, International Archives, uh, the Hong Kong Public Record Office. There is also uh, special collections in, for example, the Hong Kong University Library, uh, the Hong Kong Baptist University LC2 private papers, and also some of uh, the student newsletter that were uh, that were stored in a CUHK Library Hong Kong collections. So apart from official sources, there would also be unofficial sources such as Chinese and English newspaper reportage. Uh, mainly, uh, we use these historical sources because uh, I'm trying to overcome the limitation in work done by a political scientists and sociologists. Uh, that work actually dominates uh, this field previously. So this book is more like uh, empirically driven. So um, the The whole theme of this book is, uh, as the title has indicated, colonialism. So I'm going to look at the mechanism of uh, tongue-talk and mute. And there are also seven uh, case studies. So the first case study is uh, the Chinese as the official language movement. And the second case study is the uh, anti-corruption campaign. The third case study is the campaign against telephone rate increase. Fourth uh, chapter is on the Pressure, Blood, Golden, Jubilee, Secondary School this build, And then the fifth chapter is on uh, the immigration from uh, mainland China, mainly looking at the uh, curation and also the abolition of the touch bay uh, policy and then the sixth chapter is on the uh, British Nationality Act controversy and the last chapter. uh, I'm going to look at constitutional reforms related to representative assemblies in Hong Kong, so basically all these uh, seven cases they try to show. um how this mechanism was utilized and also show the process of like how public opinions was managed uh, to transfer into the policy making process, Uh, even Hong Kong did not have a representative government system uh, at that time. So let me talk a bit more about like the period so the book starts in 1966 and ends in 1997. so uh the reason why it started at um in in 1966 is because uh for those that are familiar with uh, hong kong history they would know that it was the year that the uh, star Ferry riots actually broke out in hong kong so we can see it was like a watershed in hong kong history signifying changing political culture locally and um in that year, uh, following that year, we also have the 1967 riots that was like uh, kind of like um, influenced by the Cultural Revolution in mainland China. So in this period, uh, we can see uh, the internal and external security in Hong Kong was uh, inseparable as well. And uh, if we look at the broader Picture. We can also see in this period that uh, the British Empire was actually uh, declining because it has lost a lot of strategically important places uh, after the Second World War. So, for example, uh, India was lost and also like the Suez Canal, et cetera, et cetera. And a period also uh, witnessed changing Sino-British relations as well. And at times we can see Sino-British relations actually deteriorate. So by 1969, um, after the riots, after the uh, uh 1966 and 1967 riots, uh, the colonial government actually uh, understood that Hong Kong future must inevitably lie in China. So it was just a matter of time that they have to retreat. But uh, in the time being, uh, when they were still in Hong Kong, uh, the colonial bureaucrat have to find ways uh, to develop a sense of civic pride as a substitute for national loyalty. and these will be very important bargaining chips for them to prepare for future negotiation with China as well. And in the same period, uh, we can also see the political system was uh, changing, even uh uh, there was uh, not a lot of like constitutional reform in the earlier period so in that period uh, there was uh this partially elected urban council in hong kong uh, but it did not really have much executive power so there was still an absence of a uh, direct state society communication channels and uh, that was the time uh, after the two riots that uh, i've just mentioned uh the city district officer scheme at uh, cdo scheme uh, was uh introduced in 1968. So that is actually the focus of uh, this book. And uh, in the same period, especially after the 70s, we can also see Hong Kong has a series of uh, legislative and institutional reforms, especially uh, during Mac Ho's era uh, that was also known as uh, the golden era uh, to some historians. So the period actually lasts from uh, 1971 to 82. So for example, uh, in this period, we can see Chinese uh, finally became official language of Hong Kong. Uh, The ICAC, independent commission against corruption uh, was set up in 1974. Uh, Tashbury policy was introduced first in 1974, but then abolished in 1980. And there was also uh, introduction of free education as well. And uh, of course, at the same time, we can see uh, state society relations and also political cultures were also shifting. And economically, of course, uh, it It's an important period because we can see Hong Kong was undergoing uh, industrialization and later turned into this uh, center of commerce and also finance as well. So all these are actually very important precursor to political and social changes, even in uh, today's uh, post-colonial Hong Kong. And some may be curious how I come up with uh, this topic. Uh, so these is actually uh, derived from uh, my PhD thesis uh, when I was at York uh, back then. So uh, I was reading a lot of uh, literature about um, uh, Hong Kong state society relations, uh, but these literature were uh, mainly written by uh, political scientists and sociologists. So for example, historian George Annicott uh, argued that Hong Kong was actually a minimum of government in the style of la laissez-faire. So he wrote his work in uh, 1964, quite early, but then um, other uh, sociologists and political scientists in the 70s seems to also support uh, his ideas. So, for example, J.S. Holdley, Ambrose King and also Norman Minus uh, also believe that um, these uh, are minimum government was like also due to the fact that uh, people were not really interested in uh, politics uh, and there was like clearly low level of political participation and uh, some some of them also argued that it was the refugee mentality because uh, most of the population uh, in Hong Kong were migrants or like refugees from uh, mainland china trying to um uh, go to Hong Kong to escape from the political turmoil, basically. So they were more like influenced by this uh, refugee mentality of like trying not to rock the boat and uh, to uh, ensure that uh, the environment was like politically stable. And they were also influenced by these like Confucius values. For example, like uh, try not to uh, stir social conflicts, try to emphasize on uh, social harmony, uh, to more focus on uh, the moral characters of the leaders rather than how the government was actually formed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so basically, with all these characteristic, uh, the colonial government, according to uh, the scholars, they were managed uh, to. Uh, gain legitimacy uh, through this practice of like uh, corruptions. So in Ambrose King work, that is the administrative absorption of politics. So basically by uh, incorporating uh, these, uh, some of them are uh, were leaders, uh, business elite, and later uh, some of the uh, members at the grassroots level through the CDO scheme, uh, the colonial government was able to gain a legitimacy. Uh, uh, without even uh de- introducing any sort of like democratic uh, reforms and in 1982 we can see this idea was actually uh, further developed by a uh, sociologist uh, Lao Xiu Gai. so he argued that Hong Kong was a minimally integrated social political system which means that on the one hand uh the Hong Kong Chinese they were politically aloof mainly influenced by uh, the concept of utilitarianistic familism, that is they were place uh, their family interests above that of the society. And uh, on the other hand, the uh, colonial government also did not have these uh, organizational capacity to penetrate into the Chinese society as well. And all the existing uh, networks or like communication channels between the state and the society were relatively weak, according to Lao. However recently we learned that this is actually an inaccurate view um yes hong kong to some extent was quite politically stable but does it mean that uh, there was uh no active uh uh that does it mean that there were absence of like political activism or uh, does it mean that people were like completely apathetic uh, about like the developments or like uh public affairs so uh that that is actually not an accurate view and we understand now as a historian um a lot of these, like sociologists or like political science literature, they mainly rely on theories and also interview data. Uh, some of them were actually quite a historical as well, so it actually missed out a lot of like useful information about context. And of course, there were other important factors that were not really explored. Um, in this existing sociologists and also political science literature, such as like demographics. And these older literature tend to treat uh, the population more as a homogeneous entity. And um, we now have more books or like articles that uh, were written by uh, revisionists showing that uh, the state was actually very active when it comes to intervention and also uh, there was uh, increased political mobilization in the Chinese society as well. So some of the work maybe, uh, for example, we can look at uh, Michael Ng's uh, recent book published by the Cambridge University Press that is uh, showing the how pervasive censorship was uh, in Hong Kong post-war period. And of course, uh, Ray Yep's uh, work on the 1967 riot also showed uh, how emergency regulations uh, were used uh, during uh, the riots. So all these uh, literature actually show us that uh, there was increased state reforms and intrusion, uh, which of course uh, the previous literature uh, did not mentioned. And um, one of the things that uh, this book also uh, hoped to do, uh, apart from like responding to like the earlier literature that I've just mentioned, is to. Uh, Answer the question whether Hong Kong fits into the general pattern of decolonization or more was an outliner uh, of uh, outliner in the British Empire. So we can see after the Second World War uh, there was a lot of anti uh, anti colonial nationalism or like insurgency uh, in the British Empire. Uh, but Hong Kong seems to be an anomaly. For example, suggested by historian like John Darwin. So uh, for Hong Kong, it did not seem to have a lot of like. Um, movement or attempts uh, by the society to overthrow the uh, colonial state but at the same time um, we can also look at the political system uh, of Hong Kong in the immediate post-war period it was largely unreformed so for example the legislative council uh, many of the members still appointed by the governor they were mainly professionals and business elite Uh, similarly in the executive council councillors were also appointed by governor or the queen and then we have the uh, urban council as mentioned but also Of course, it possessed a very little executive power and also have a very narrow franchise. So in a sense, there was a lack of uh, direct channels for mass political participation in this period. So this book basically tried to uh, respond to uh, all these arguments of like the earlier um, sociologists, political science writing about state society relations, and also like uh, the ideas that whether Hong Kong was an outliner uh, in terms of decolonization in the British Empire. So what? What are the arguments of this book? Uh, so this book, this book mainly argues that the colonial administration possessed increased organizational capacity in the period uh, after all these reforms. So in particular, the focus of this book, uh, the city district officer scheme, uh, shows that um, the colonial government was active in investing in its uh, surveillance apparatus since the late 1960s. Uh, in particular, uh, the covert opinion polling system, Tanto and Mood, aimed uh, to construct public opinions and then feed them back to the policy and making process. So these are, uh, uh, mechanism was actually a carefully constructed uh, statecraft. Um, it allowed Hong Kong Chinese to influence policy uh, formulation in a subtle way at the discretion of the colonial state without having to introduce democratic electoral reform that may provoke China resistance and politicize the Chinese population in Hong Kong. And uh, the second part of this book, also look at these uh, increased political activism and diverse political cultures among different uh, people in different age groups, in different social class and uh, based on this finding it would argue that uh, the hong kong case was actually far from an anomaly so it basically was only utilizing some old tactics of imperial rule to new circumstances that was uh, that were unique to hong kong and of course at uh, hong kong has its own mechanism and own form of uh colonialism and decolonization because of these uh unique geopolitics uh, that is exactly why all these mechanisms were actually covert rather than overt so let's talk about uh the origins of Tang talk and Moot. That is uh, the covert uh, mechanisms uh, that we have been talking about. So uh since the founding of the PRC, uh the uh uh, the PRC has always viewed that uh the treaty that governed Hong Kong uh were unequal and also invalid. It therefore has always been opposed to Hong Kong's uh, democratization. Uh, by 1950s, uh, the colonial government was still uncertain about like the attitudes of uh uh the Chinese government. But by the mid 1960s, it was uh, pretty sure that uh China would not accept any attempts uh. uh by the colonial government or like by the British government to democratize Hong Kong. Uh, this view was actually uh, widely accepted among uh, the colonial bureaucrats. Uh, this assumption was basically uh, because uh, these colonial bureaucrats associate uh, changes in constitutional status or like uh, the introduction of uh, democratic electoral reforms uh, to self-government and independence based on their experiences in other British colonies. And um, by 1967, after the uh, 1967 riots, uh, it was uh, very clear that uh, China would object to any uh, democratic development in Hong Kong. And another concern uh, that could, the colonial government had was that um, if uh, elections were actually allowed or like, introduced uh, in colonial Hong Kong, then uh, it would basically entangle Hong Kong into the Cold War politics. So uh, there could be emergence of both pro-nationalist and also pro-communist Hong Kong-based uh, politicians, which is uh which was a scenario that uh, of course uh, they did not want to see. And it is important for us to, lo- uh, to know that uh, Hong Kong at that time was actually very much uh, militarily uh, vulnerable. So uh, in, uh, immediately after the uh, formation of the PRC, Hong Kong's garrison has actually been strengthened. Uh, however, it was soon scaled down again and mainly because of uh, the Korean War. And uh, at the same time, we can see that uh, Hong Kong's strategic interest in general has diminished uh, for the British after the Second World War. And uh, even the British tried to ask uh, for the U.S. help uh, to defend Hong Kong in cases of like a potential uh, Chinese invasion. Uh, the U.S. was uh, extremely reluctant. So uh, by 1940 19- Fifty-two. Uh, in internal report, we could actually see that uh, um, the uh, British government had reached this agreement that uh, if there was any uh, full-scale attack uh, by the communist China, uh, at that point, they would just uh, evacuate. So they basically would not really defend Hong Kong. So uh, in other words, uh, because of uh, the fact that hong kong was military really uh, indefensible so the internal stability and also external security of hong kong largely uh, was rest on uh, the chinese government decision uh, to maintain the status quo so basically uh, a um, normal relationship that could allow uh, the british to continue to administrate uh, hong kong so this is one direct quote from uh, the hong kong public record office Uh, Basically, the colonial government uh, believed that they should try uh, to avoid provoking China uh, unnecessarily and consider very carefully any actions to which the Chinese people's government would feel bound to react to, which include the introduction of democratic reforms that would challenge China's sovereignty over Hong Kong and open the door to a confrontation uh, between left-wing and also right-wing supporters. So that explain why uh, there was no uh, major constitutional or uh, democratic reforms uh, in the immediately post-war period in Hong Kong. So uh, this is another direct quote also from a document that's called Aims and Policy of the Hong Kong Government uh, in the Hong Kong Public Records Office. So uh, these Uh, Documents says, uh, many people will tell us and often do that none of this is as effective in promoting the rights of the citizens as democratic self-government. But it is commonly held that uh, the Chinese government will accept the status of Hong Kong only for as long as there are no constitutional developments which may be interpreted as pointing towards self-government. You will therefore not find in government policy any intention to promote sophisticated Western democratic institution. We have to get our public participation in other ways. So these actually explain uh, the origins of Tang talk and mute uh, as some sort of like imperfect substitute for uh, democratic reforms in Hong Kong. So uh, when the CDO scheme, uh, city district Officer scheme uh, was introduced uh, in 1968, before that, uh, there were also other uh, channels of communication, but most of them were uh, indirect. For example, we can see that uh, the colonial government had been monitoring a lot of like Chinese uh, presses to get a sense of like public opinion. There were also Kaifeng associations through these uh, Kaifeng leaders. They tried to uh, get a sense of like what people, uh, men in the street, actually uh, thought uh, of different like important issues or like the government policies. But uh, by the late 1960s, it was very obvious that uh, these channels were no longer working effectively. So, for example, the Colonial Secretary E.B. E. Teasdale, uh, he mentioned that all these um, measures or like these existing mechanisms uh, still leave a good deal of ground untouched. And more importantly, uh, these uh, Kaifeng Association, they were actually in decline in the later period. So we can see they become increasingly difficult to recruit younger members as well. So it was in this context that uh, the city district office scheme was introduced as the first direct state society communication channel, which aimed to increase uh, political participation without implementing democratic reforms. It also aligned with the informal devolution of power. Uh, so this is another direct quote uh, from uh, the Hong Kong Public Record Office. The people of Hong Kong would realize that the policies of Hong Kong government were in their best interest and a some method of local government could be developed so that the colonial government could govern and determine in partnership with those who live here what is right uh, for Hong Kong and its people and not abdicate to external pressure. The CDO scheme was actually a multifunctional political structure, so it aimed to act as eyes and ears of uh, the government so basically help to uh, have these civilians monitor changing public opinions and also like uh, learn what was the gossips or like what did the people in the street uh, really talk about like every day and at the same time it was also a voice uh, of the government as well Uh, so uh, through that uh, the officer would also try to uh, explain uh, government policy and also answer public inquiries and also manage district affairs so um, these city district officers, uh, they were actually intended to be political officers and they have a uh, considerable influence uh, in the district. So uh, their functions were to foresee local problems and conflicts and to initiate proposal for changes when needs uh, were apparent. And one very interesting mechanism that was embedded in the CDO scheme was uh, the town talk. So we can look at town talk, uh, what, what, what is town talk? So town talk basically was a covert opinion poll that try to incorporate the lowest strata of the society into the administrative system and policy-making process. So another direct quote uh, from uh, the... Uh, Hong Kong Public Record Office uh, documents uh, we've just mentioned that a substitute for uh, representative democracy uh, was needed because a Western democratic institution could not be promoted in Hong Kong and other ways for political participation had to be sought. So these uh, town top mechanism actually help uh, the colonial government to detect any strong current of public feelings and solicit views of men in the street from different walks of life. And we can uh, look at this. Two other quote are uh, from the PRO as well. So, uh, it was mentioned that when policies and camp and and programs are being formulated, much attention is focused upon the relevance of informed and independent opinion. Indeed, this process is probably taken. Um, sorry taken further in Hong Kong than in most territories. Uh, In particular, the city district office scheme opened up new opportunities in this direction, and every advantage should be taken of this scope uh, it offers for consulting public opinions on particular district projects. So it is very obvious that uh, the colonial government uh, hoped to use this covert mechanism to uh, solicit public views, but at the same time to... uh, Basically uh, use them as input when they were formulating policies and programs. And the second poll is uh, colonial government performance to be compared reasonably well with uh, that achieved by more formal democratic process that exists in the West, especially in entertaining complaints and consulting the public. So you can see at the from the colonial government perspective, uh, they believe that these uh, covert mechanisms actually work fairly well uh, in Hong Kong and could be comparable to uh, democratic reforms uh, in in um other countries so why this mechanism had to be covert? so I think one very important point that we mentioned was uh, China's likely opposition it was uh because of the geopolitics it was uh just not possible to introduce major constitutional changes in Hong Kong in that period and if uh the colonial government tried to introduce uh, these changes uh, it would be possible that there would just be more like potential popular demands for uh, other changes like constitutional changes as well. So they have to uh, look for a substitute for these representative democracy. And another um youthfulness of uh, this mechanism for the colonial government is that uh, the degree of the society political engagement uh, was uh, completely controlled by the government because uh, this mechanism was covert and the public was uh, not aware of its assistance. In this case, even there were a lot of exercise that had been done, a lot of monitoring, um, it still provides this uh, leeway uh, for the colonial government to decide when to listen or when not to listen uh, to public opinions. So we can see it is a, a very interesting colonial statecraft that was a, a due attempt by uh, the colonial state to expand its organizational capacity, to gather intelligence on public opinion on the one hand, but also to widen channels of uh, political participation on the other hand. So in terms of manpower cost and methodologies, we can see Uh, since the very beginning of this uh, project, the uh, colonial government has been very serious and invests a lot. So, uh, for example, we can look at uh the manpower in 1968. Uh, uh, sorry, Tantong already have over 100 uh, reporting officers. And each exercise would take about like 110 hours, costing quite a lot of money, more than uh, 1,300. And then... uh. It also stated that a uh, solicited uh, could not be selected, but have to be random. So this is to ensure that um, they can have the opinions of people uh, of different social class in different areas of different occupations, and the officers were supposed to frame their questions uh, in a neutral ways as well, uh, as mentioned because uh, they hope that these are uh, uh, this sort of like um, exercise uh, could be done in in some sort of like random way and. Uh, it, it basically suggests that uh, these officers should not interview people uh, in the same uh, social groups uh, for an excessive numbers. And uh, whenever they encounter people that try to imply that uh, the government was inefficient, the government was corrupt and other problems, uh, they should not agree uh, with this view, but instead they should provide a rational account uh, of the government. So we can see that uh, Tongue Talk did not, only try to uh, provide intelligence uh, uh, to the government or like to uh, find out about these uh, public opinions. It also have this function trying to shape uh, public opinions and improve the image of the colonial government. So we can see that in this exercise that uh, people of different groups, uh, of different social class, occupation, and geographical areas, uh, uh, these respondents would be included. And in terms of dissemination, so after uh, all these exercise uh, have been done, uh, they would be organized into uh, reports uh, that is uh, of course called town talk, and then they would be circulated to high rank civil servants and policymakers who would take time to read it and often discuss it with uh, heads of department, so high rank uh, uh, colonial bureaucrats. And um, town talk was actually restricted. So its existence was concealed uh, from the public, and not only the public, but in fact, uh, the government also hoped that uh, it would not get into hands of uh, junior officers. So this is mainly to avoid the criticism of being a a civilian state, and also um, help the colonial government to control uh, the level of uh, the so-called political participation. Uh, So we can see that even um, Tang Hangzhou has this like deal attempt, Uh, its function as an intelligent device was prioritized uh, to that of like increasing uh, popular political uh, participation. So there were uh, a lot of evidence that seems to suggest that a uh, tongue talk uh, really uh, was influencing policy at uh, the policy making process. So for example, uh, this is a quote from David Lai, the city district commissioner of Kowloon uh, in 1969. Uh, he said, there's no doubt that the town talk paper had become not just an information paper on what people have been talking about in town, but an increasingly e- effective paper to get uh, departments into action. This is largely because of uh, the importance given to the, to the paper by uh, the governor and also uh, that implied criticism in some cases of government departments. So uh, some examples that I can find uh, in the uh National Archives in London was that a was actually also partly contribute uh, to the setting up of the uh, ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption uh, in Hong Kong in 1974. So we can see during the discussion process uh, whether uh, an an independent, uh, commission or a uh, a um, a uh, inquiry that was like more like appointed by London in London should be set up. Uh, Tangto actually had these like analyzed or public opinions about it, and according to uh, these files uh, in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, it says uh, Tangto of second uh, of August said that uh, several people have suggested the British government should now launch a full separate investigation into the galba case. As again, this a UK inquiry would be a major blow to hong kong's among proper so we can see that uh, in this case uh, the uh, comments or uh, the public opinions that was recorded in Tao were actually uh taken into consideration when it comes to these uh institutional change so uh, from this case we can see that uh, Tang tongue actually uh, facilitate to uh within the channel po- political participation, even uh, in this period, we can see this continued absence of a democratic uh, electoral system uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, So at that time, uh, uh, because of the importance of tang talk, we can see uh, there is uh, more uh, reforms um, in the mechan uh, in the mechanism itself, so we can see that, for example, the sample size was expanded. So previously, they did not really state that how many people you should interview, but now at least you have to interview like six hundred people. It also start adopting this quota sampling system, and uh, of course, uh, is district by district. So basically uh, these 600 people uh, distribution will be based on uh, the distribution of gender, age, and occupation in that area. Uh, A random sampling method, however, was uh, ruled out mainly because of uh, uh, the insufficient manpower at that time and how expensive it could be. So uh, all these changes actually helped uh, to turn Tang Talk into a more reliable exercise and uh, help the colonial government to have a greater reach into the uh, Chinese society. Uh, because previously within the colonial uh, bureaucracy, there were uh, these uh, criticisms that uh, Tang Talk was mostly unsystematic. It was uh, very impressionistic, but did not have any statistical support But however, because of these like uh, criticism uh, about like tongue talk, uh, the colonial government decided uh, in 1975, uh, it has to introduce a exercise called Mood, uh, that is Movement of Opinion Direction. So Mood was actually a successor of Town Talk, but it was supposed to be a more uh, affrontative and therefore inferential public opinion poll. It mainly draw attention to uh, subjects which were uh, at that time currently or potentially a public concern. It also hoped to assess uh, public reactions, attitudes, and feelings in appropriate instances and uh, collect opinions that were not reported by uh, the news media. And uh, it would also examine the impact of the press on public opinion, some public misconceptions, and the voices of the less articulate classes who uh, otherwise couldn't get their views heard or that would have uh, difficulties and therefore suffer in silence. Uh, more importantly, controversial topics and anti-government activities would also be examined. So uh, the whole reform uh, turning uh, town talk in the mood was basically hoping to have a more credible and refined and methodologies so for example like previously we noticed that uh, some of the cdo actually would Interview the better informed uh, respondent more frequently uh, means that there was no comprehensive view of a cross section of communities uh, in Hong Kong. And the fact that it was uh, usually organized uh, on a weekly basis also means that the CDO would have very limited time for full investigation of the issues. And sometimes uh, the reports also reflect more like the bias of the uh, officials, therefore, like distorting uh, public uh, opinion as well. So uh, to expand uh, uh, the sampling size, uh, to prevent uh, these uh, uh, more informed uh, respondent to be interviewed repeatedly. Uh, so now we have a new method. So for example, we can see that uh, the sample was expanded uh, by using data supplied by the mutual aid committees and also the Kaifong Association. And now each staff would have a 50-person contact list. And every week, one-third of the people were removed and then replaced by new contacts. And then the uh, Community Information Unit also uh, would be responsible for continuing to monitor uh, media comments to understand sentiments of sensitive groups. And, and now the sample size had also been expanded. Uh, rather than only interviewing at least 600 people, it uh, now interviewed at least at uh, two uh, thousand and five. 100 people. So uh, in this uh, 2,500 people, the details of age group, class, educational background, type of residence, gender, and occupation would also be provided. And uh, because mood was still a uh, qualitative uh, exercise, so uh, it's still adhered to using unstructured uh, sampling uh, method and also interviewing techniques. By 1977, we can see that uh, just in uh, conducting this uh, mood exercise, we have at least between 150 and 250 monitors, and uh, the regular updated contact list now have more than uh, 10,000 people. So to cover a wider construction of a uh, Hong Kong, and uh, to make it like more uh, random, uh, less. Uh, selective uh, we can also see there was increase in incidental contact at, at least by a uh, two thousand to three thousand and it was uh, specified that no respondents should be interviewed more than once in less than four months and um of course uh there were still uh, a lot of like interviewing questions uh because like some of them were uh, mainly like qualitative exercise so um it depends on the nature of the exercise and also like uh, the question that or the topic that they are trying to find out sometimes uh, it was through observations sometimes it could be through a questionnaire sometimes it was uh uh, through interviews and it is uh, interesting to also point out that uh, uh, MUTE actually also borrowed some of uh, the system uh, from Osaka feedback scheme and also the Japanese Monitor for National Policy as well. So it was not exactly uh, completely original, but it actually uh, uh, borrowed the ideas from uh, other systems and uh, uh, tried to adapt that t- uh, to the Hong Kong uh, unique environment. And in terms of interviewing techniques, in order to get to the heart of these uh, uh, respondents, uh, basically... Uh, these CDO were instructed not to uh, standardize uh, their, their questions or like uh, not to have a like very specific orders when it comes to uh, asking questions. And previously, uh, we can see that uh, because Tang talk uh, mainly focusing on urban area of Hong Kong, uh, that is uh, Kowloon and Hong Kong Island, uh, it really did not cover uh, the new territory such as Chum uh, Wan. Uh, But now we can see that uh, uh, by 1980, uh, it start covering uh, Chumwan and Chung, the new territories. Uh, It also start adopting a quota sampling method. uh, That is the selection of contact uh, was according uh, to gender, age and occupation, and now in proportion to the number and also distribution of the overall uh, population uh, in the area however for more important uh, topics uh such as like green paper or like future uh constitutional reforms uh or like uh, a potential handover of Hong Kong, the colonial government still uh, prefer to use more uh, scientific methods that is like more uh, statistically uh, based uh, rather than this like very qualitative exercise. And we can see because of the uh, adoption of the quota sampling method, uh, the uh, exercise also reduced the sampling size now from uh, 2,500 to uh, 993 so I realize we are running out of time but um these exercise uh as far as I, I can see uh, at least survive until uh November 1992 so this was actually the last copy of our uh talking points uh I guess uh, that's the um the next version of Mute uh, that could be found in uh, at the archives and uh, Talking Point uh, was uh, a weekly records of issues of current interest collected from a small number of respondents in both urban and also new territory district issue every Friday. Uh, the reason, um, um, the reason why I guess like. Uh, talking point uh, was still uh, in use was because uh, the colonial government still care about like this uh, qualitative aspect of uh, public opinion. But at the same time, we can see compared to, for example, like the late 60s or like the 70s. These covert mechanisms become way less uh, significant. Uh, That was because uh, there was increased democratization at the local level. For example, uh, uh, we begin to have uh, the district board election in 1982. Uh, Of course, after the Sino-British Joint Declaration was reached, we can see uh, even more constitutional reforms uh, in Hong Kong. So there was this gradual decline of the paradigm of consultative uh, politics in Hong Kong. And by the 1980s, uh, as mentioned, when it comes to like more important uh, topics that require more manpower or like that, uh, the colonial government would help to have uh, more statistical bagging, they would actually contract that out uh, to commercial polling and also research firms and sometimes uh, uh, universities as well. So we can see that, yes, uh, these covert mechanisms still exist now in the name of talking points, but it was actually become way less significant compared to that in the uh, 1960s, late 1960s, and also the uh, 1970s. So uh, let's make a short conclusion. So in conclusion, based on this finding, uh, we can uh, argue that I guess Hong Kong was far from a minimally integrated social political system unlike what Lao has suggested. So we can see the colonial government and the Chinese society interact frequently and uh, in particular Tang Tong and Moot, they were important mechanism uh, for the colonial government to understand changing popular sentiments and also help them in policy making. And we can see this covert polling exercise was also institutionalized as well, embedded in the city district officer scheme means that the colonial government have both the wills and means um to um monitor the Chinese society and also to uh to uh, understand uh um their public opinions as well so that is the manifestation of covert colonialism Uh, but at the same time interestingly uh these uh mechanism also allow ordinary people to take part in the policy formulation process in a state control, but uh, but in a state control and also a covert manner. So we can see that um, this priority uh the, the priority of uh, this exercise basically uh it focused more on like getting the intelligence uh, for uh, the colonial government uh to find out more about like public opinions to minimize social unrest uh is more was more important uh, compared to really allowing these people to take more part in uh, the policy formulation process. And uh, mainly it was introduced because uh, uh, the colonial government hoped not to provoke China or further politicize the population as well. So the second part of this book, as we can see, like in those case study, actually, uh, we also talk about the political cultures of uh, different social class and age groups, which, uh, however, I don't think we have enough time to cover uh, in this book. conversation right now. So, for example, it will show that uh, the upper and the middle classes are opposed to political activism, and they saw a political activism uh, actually incompatible uh, with their social status. They tend to be more pro-status, quo. Uh, but the, for the working class, they were less informed, but uh, they could be mobilized when their interests uh, were affected as well. They were mainly driven by instrumentalism, Middle-aged and elderly members of the society were more politically conservative. Uh, the young generation tend to have a more anti-colonial outlook. Uh, so um, if you're interested, you're more than welcome to uh, read the rest of the book, or like you can email me as well. And I guess lastly, uh, because um we can see that uh, the CDO scheme itself was actually... um. Uh, trying to basic, basically, uh, when the CDO scheme was uh discussed, it draw experiences from, for example, uh, the district officer scheme uh, that were previously implemented in Africa. It also draw uh. uh some of the mechanisms and experiences from uh, the People's Association in Singapore, and also as we can see, uh, of course, uh, when it become mood, uh, it also uh, learn some of the tech and also borrow some of the techniques uh, from the Japanese system as well. So I would say that uh, in this case, like Hong Kong was not exactly an, an anomaly because we can see that uh, it actually uh, borrow these ideas or like these uh, statecraft from uh, different places, uh, but only adapted to like. Uh, Hong Kong because of like Hong Kong unique geopolitics and environment. So I I'm gonna stop talking now. So if uh Bang, you have any questions then uh, you're more than welcome to ask or like if there's anything you would want to uh discuss in particular uh please please feel free. Thank you for Florence for
1: this uh delightful uh interesting, and in, uh presentation of her book. And for me, I think it's really a timely book regarding what has happened in Hong Kong in the past ten years, and also regarding this relationship with China, with mainland China, and also in the great greater China region. For me, I when while I was reading the book, I can see the line the the whole timeline how Hong Kong become uh, a democratic polity through these uh, strategies uh, administered by the colonial, by its colonial um government. So I think it's it's quite a confusing concept, the covert colonialism, because I think it extend even extend my understanding about colonialism to in in a way. I, I may I, I actually quite interesting in how you pick those seven case studies because to me they yeah, they are really rich for and how do you come across the, these case studies and on what ground that you designed to use these seven case studies instead of others if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh for these case studies, so uh because of uh, they were basically um, so most of the uh so um, uh, the the selection of the case study mainly based on, of course, like archival archival findings as well. But I try to look at case study that uh, involve like um people of like different uh, social class and age group. For example, like they were political uh, activism or like social movement. Uh, but at the same time, um, those uh, case study. Uh, one, have abundant record in uh, the archives, whether in London, whether in Hong Kong or like other special collections in different universities and also uh, widely reported by newspaper. Uh, two is like the case hasn't been really um, thoroughly covered by other uh, existing uh, work or like by other existing historians. So basically uh, these were the criteria that I used uh, to uh, look at. Uh, to to select the case studies and also uh more importantly is like those case studies usually have uh, have an outcome so sometimes that uh, for example the chinese as uh, an official language uh, people were uh, fighting to turn uh, to legalize chinese as uh, the official language of the state and um of course, like by 1974, uh, they were successful uh, because uh, there was a law and ordinance that actually announced that Chinese was one of the official languages in Hong Kong. Uh, but in other cases, for example, like the British Nationality Act uh, controversy uh, in 1981, uh, we can see even there were a lot of like the executive uh, councillors, a lot of like uh, some of the local Chinese that actually. Uh, disapprove uh these are uh, change in terms of like nationality which of course would affect uh, the right to reside in in the United Kingdom uh, because it affects for example other Colonial dependent dependency it also affects like the Metropole London so um these are uh, voices these public voices actually did not uh, successfully persuade uh uh the uh, British government to introduce like any changes so we we can see like um Usually they have this demand, but at the same time, we can also see an outcome. So uh sometimes like uh, yes, public opinion managed to um make changes. Like um it could lead to like um passage of like legislation, uh uh creation of new institutions, but sometimes uh it uh when it have uh when it affects uh more places uh rather than just Hong Kong when it affect the metropole uh that is London the UK then it would uh it would not have a as powerful as impact like like as powerful impact as like the other cases so I think that that are the main criteria like I was thinking about when selecting the case studies
1: maybe um I think it's a quite interesting concept of the covert colonialism I I'm quite interested to know to what extent have town talk and mood this kind of strategy influenced the relationship between Hong Kong people and the colonial government at the time, or or even to today, if if you if you have any idea on this.
0: Okay, so uh, thanks for the question, I cannot answer for like um, today's Hong Kong because uh my research. Stops at stop in 1997 so uh, i don't really have much uh, information about like a uh, current hong kong especially like archival data uh, but if you are asking about like um the changing state society relations at that time so there are a few things that uh, we can understand from this book or like from this research so i think one is uh, we can see um the colonial government be trying to become increasingly responsive to public opinions if uh it could, because obviously we understand that after the 66 and 67 riots, there was this like problem of legitimacy uh for the colonial government. So it is important for them to like to stay in touch with changing public opinions and to minimize uh the chance of like similar events uh to happen again. So we can see these initiative. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we because it's colonialism, right? So we can also see that uh, the colonial government, even they were keen to be more responsive or like they reform uh, uh, these uh, communication channels. They still prioritize um, their own interests. That is uh, to, one, to gather this intelligence because this is for their legitimacy and this is like for uh, uh, the stability of Hong Kong. Uh, but also, two, uh, is that, Simply because it's covert, it actually uh, gives them these advantages that they can just decide when to listen or not to listen to public opinions. Because imagine if this is overt, um, for example, if the colonial government have a large scale uh, public survey on, uh, I don't know, maybe constitutional change. And then maybe it suggests that, oh, majority actually support constitutional change. And at the end, it did not really listen to public opinion, what would happen. So the covert nature of this exercise actually uh, prevent this sort of situation from happening and give uh, the colonial government a considerable... Uh, Amount of feasibility or like leeway uh, when it comes to policy making. So you can see that yes, even like um, it seems like there were more channels for uh, the Chinese society uh, to express their opinions uh, and also to ask for changes. But at the same time, uh, the colonial government still uh, have their own interest. And I mean, um, the the um, presentation just now probably haven't uh, covered everything, but we can see the political cultures were changing as well. So in the book itself, uh, it actually talks about how people have changing views uh, towards uh, the colonial government, towards Hong Kong, or like... Um, a specific uh, policy or change as well. So previously, I guess, um, the old generation that were migrants or like that uh, have the so-called refugee mentality, uh, they tend to be uh, more afraid of officialdom. So uh, unless uh, uh there was something major they would try not to for example contact the police it was also because uh the police was also quite corrupt at that time because uh uh, we can see that um corruption was actually quite serious in hong kong before the icac was formed and um the uh corruption department was actually located within the police force as well so people did not have this confidence to reach out uh to officials when they need help but we can see uh very obviously uh, in the 70s, since the 70s, these have been changing. So people became more focal when uh, they see something that was like unjust or like they were not happy about specific policy, they would be more willing uh, to, to speak out, basically. So we can see that um, some of the case studies, for example, Chinese as the official language, um, it did not only involve like the students, uh groups that were like the usual like, active. Um, historical actors in the period, but it also involved a lot of like working class, ordinary people that also care about the language issues as well. So I guess another thing we can see is like these changing state society relations. So obviously, there was changing ways uh, or approach taken by the colonial government to uh, handle um, uh, issues in the Chinese society to try to be more responsive, but at the same time provide themselves a certain degree of uh, flexibility but uh, at the same time we can also see uh the chinese society they become more um focal they become more active and uh i think it's a two-way thing so you can see how the society was actually moving towards like um the hong kong maybe like in the 1990s or like even after the handover like the hong kong now because i think like all these actually uh, facilitate the emergence of these uh, new political cultures yes that's um but that's uh, that but that also comes to my last question
1: maybe these um how do you think is any government with, that uses these kind of um mobilizes public participation into pol- in political culture these strategies uh, a colonial one or a democratic one if 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 that's the
0: I mean I am a Hong Kong historian, so I cannot like give very um mm, precise information of like what uh other geographical areas or like what other countries um were doing or are doing. But I mean uh from the Hong Kong case we can see that uh these sort of situations were uh, used in different places. Um so for example, I mentioned about like uh, in Africa, in Singapore or like Japan have also been uh, using some uh, similar monitoring system. So I guess it is um if we talk about surveillance in general or like uh, opinion monitoring, it would be uh, very common in all sorts of societies, of course. But I guess it's more like how um, the state make use uh, of the opinion that they solicit. So that actually would define uh, what, what actually, whether it was like colonial in some sense or like whether it was democratic, if it makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yes, I, I think that's more... Yes, we can use this um, history provided to explore explore these concepts further because it's always changing. The society, uh, the state society relationship is also changing, which comes to like we thanks Florence for today and we've taken up a lot of time. So that's what I'm asking. What's your next? Um, project that regarding Hong
0: Kong's studies if you are doing anything interesting would I please I mean uh, at the moment uh, me and my team uh, in uh, NTU Singapore we have uh, set up this uh Hong Kong research Hub so we are actually working together uh on a project that is about water shortages and water supply so it's quite different uh, from this uh project uh, on Quebec colonialism but uh it also uh, related in some sense because part of the project also explore like state society relations during crisis especially uh these water crisis uh in the 60s and we can look at like how um the crisis management techniques change over time as well but of course there were other parts of um the project that are. Uh, also quite new to me. For example, we would look at like more environmental history, uh, the development of different like water infrastructure from a reservoir to like designation plants, uh, to uh, catch water, et cetera, et cetera. And we would also try to look at um how water affect like public culture and also entertainment as well. So we can see, uh, for example, some of you may know uh, there were popular culture, uh, like movies or drama that are like specifically on the topic of uh, water shortage. There were songs as well. Like some of you may have think of Sam Hoy's Zai Go. So a lot of these are very interesting things. So if you are interested in our, our new water project, uh, please stay in touch and uh we will have more upcoming events uh many of them are actually hybrid uh, in march and april thank you that sounds really
1: good uh, i am I'm really happy that we now we, uh, there are many hong kong study or hong kong research hubs that can really treat hong kong as an academic subject rather than you know it's always within chinese studies or something like that I really hope to talk to you again um, for, on, about your new projects. And thank you for being on the show today. Now we must say goodbye to our, audi- our audience. We say goodbye.
0: Thank you so much. If you're interested, then just send me an email and uh, I we can talk more about like, the book or like, other projects.
1: Okay. Say so goodbye, everyone. You.
0: Bye. Bye.